Hello, and welcome back to the stories that brought you here. It's the podcast dedicated to the stories of the people from Pender Island, British Columbia. Once again, I'm your host, Chris Wakalek, and I'll be sitting down in one-on-one hour-long conversations with current Pender Island residents to hear the stories that brought them to this sporty little island we live on, and to also hear the stories that brought them to the point that they're at in their lives right now. Today, I will be speaking with Tim Frick. Now, if you know Tim like I know Tim, then you're going to know him as that guy who's involved in wheelchair athletics. Well, today we're going to get to hear Tim talk about that and a heck of a lot more. We're going to get to hear Tim talk about his professional relationships with both Terry Fox and Rick Hansen. We'll get to hear him talk about the massive success he had coaching Canada's national women's wheelchair basketball team. Tim will describe his involvement with the German Shepherd Rescue of British Columbia organization. And as well, Tim will talk a little bit about kayaking and RVing in this really amazing interview where I really got to find out a ton about Tim. And I just kind of knew a little bit of the outline of stories from Tim's life of things he was involved in. And it was amazing to sit down and get to hear some of these stories And as well, too, for the second time in the last three shows, I'm going to apologize for the sound. I've been still trying to work out the kinks with the mic. Tim sounds amazing, but I sound a little bit echoey and distant in the background. But as long as the guest sounds good, that's all I really care about. So anyway, I know you're going to enjoy this one. Now, without further ado, here is my interview with Tim Frick. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much for having me. I really have enjoyed listening to the ones uh, so far. It's so great to to get to know the people uh, on Pender. And uh, yeah, we have a magical little island here. Yeah, thanks. thanks. I appreciate that. Thanks for saying that. We're, uh, we're just sitting down on a uh, late morning, early afternoon on Sunday morning on Remembrance Day. And uh, yeah, actually, we were just talking before we started about your parents, and I thought maybe that might be just a quick, interesting place to start here. You were just telling me a couple of stories about your parents being in World War II and discussing that. Maybe before we touch on the first traditional question that I normally get to on this podcast, maybe if you just want to tell me a little bit about your parents uh, related to uh, their time serving in the war. Well, my dad uh, tried to sign up to be a, a fighter pilot. Uh, he lied about his age, and of course, uh, once they found that out, they turned him into a, into a mechanic, and uh, that's where he met my mom, who was also a mechanic, uh, interestingly. Then as time went on, they got married, actually, in uh, 1942, and then uh, he got sent to Burma and uh, served over there till the end of the war, and uh, she got transferred to work for the Secret Service, and uh, she must have been <laughs> picked because uh, she could keep a secret, because we... You know, as kids never knew uh, what she did. And, and uh, even after she passed away, you know, there was only sort of rumors that other relatives, you know, in England would tell us about her uh, time with the Secret Service. So, you know, we uh, growing up in the 50s and 60s, you know, you sort of had a different sense of uh, the history of World War II than uh, obviously we do today. For sure. What were your parents' names? Well, Tony and uh, Mary. And uh, they actually decided... Uh, you know, after the war, jobs were really tough, uh, you know, late uh, 40s, early 50s over in England. And uh, at that time, because of the Commonwealth, uh, Australia, New Zealand, and Canada were the three sort of popular places for people of their age to go. They were in their 20s uh, to go and uh, and get jobs and, and start their families. So uh, I think they decided on uh, Canada because they had some friends here. So uh, my dad flew over actually in uh, January of 1957. 
He uh, uh, flew to New York and then took a train up to uh, Sudbury, Ontario, where he had a friend. And I don't know if you've ever been to Sudbury, but I think they filmed the moon landing uh, episodes there. <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, it's an interesting place, a little bit cold in the winter, a little bit hot in the summer, but uh, lovely spot nonetheless. He got a job, earned enough money to send for my mother and my older sister and I, and uh, we came over on the Ivernia. We landed in Montreal in uh, June of 57. So spent about eight years in uh, in Sudbury. I loved it there. I loved playing hockey on the lake, you know, every winter. Uh, you know, really, I loved the outdoors, but it was too cold for them. <laughs> and and uh, so they moved out to British Columbia in, in uh, 1965. Okay. Sudbury, it's a land of nickel. That's right. The big nickel was just being erected when we left. And uh, and they had just raised the smokestacks smoke there in the, uh, the uh, iron mines to have the uh, smoke you know, land further away from the city. So the city is actually quite green now. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. I've only driven through there a few times, but uh, yeah, it's interesting. Like it's a really barren place on the outskirts of it, you say? Oh, yeah. 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 It's a Canadian shield. It's kind of like that anyway. I guess a lot of rock and a lot of lakes and stuff. Good point. But, and it's interesting. He actually, his original goal was to try to get the Kitimat because the aluminum smelter was going in up there. And those were big, big jobs. But um, ended up... Uh, Working in the police force in a little town called Coppercliff, and and uh, my mom ended up with a job in administration in a hospital, and and finally they moved out to Parksville. So I grew up in Parksville, Qualicum, and as a Parksville, Qualicum guy, you know the Gulf Islands, like you know they just didn't exist. You know, like we kind of looked down on the people from the Gulf Islands back in the '60s, and you know a bunch of hippies and you know stuff like that. So it's kind of ironic that you know I ended up here. Oh, really? So wait, there was a perception of the Gulf Islands being a super hippie place in the 60s? or Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was uh, nobody wanted to, you know, you couldn't imagine living out in the sticks like uh, on Pender or Salt Spring. I mean, I think we went to Salt Spring once as a school team to play some some games or maybe a soccer team or something. And uh, yeah, we just couldn't wait to get out of there. It's, it's, it's kind of embarrassing now to sort of say that, you know, because uh, now I'd recommend it to anyone. <laughs> That's funny. Um, okay, cool. Well, let's let's lead into the traditional first question. And before I do that, I just want to give uh, honor and thanks to your parents for both uh, participating in World War II, considering the day that uh, it is today, and uh, say thank you for that. But uh, the traditional first question is, what uh, what made you eventually come to Pender Island here? <laughs> well, it's uh, I don't know if it's uh, that interesting of a story, but uh, it is to me anyway. <laughs> but um, I worked at Douglas College uh, uh, teaching and uh, coaching for quite a few years. And uh, my colleague, who was, I think, your seventh or eighth interviewee, Jewel Roper, she was a single mom. Uh, we were colleagues. Uh, I taught uh, part-time in her department as well. And I think when Jordan was around two or three, she asked me to, you know, be like a big brother, an unofficial big brother, kind of a male influence. And that sort of all worked out. And, you know, my actually my first day when, you know, I, I went to daycare to, to meet with Jordan, have lunch and sit with all the other kids. And they gave me my own table with a whole bunch of little three and four year olds and a fight broke out. One kid punched another kid in the nose and, and all the other little kids are looking at me to do something. And I'm going like, well, I don't know how to break up a, <laughs> a three year old fight. Anyway, it's a, it was a auspicious start, but you know, we became uh, kind of like family. We, you know, we are like family. We spend uh, uh, most of our holidays together and, and stuff. So Jewel had the, the place on uh, Pender down Pirates Road with her brother, Chris, uh, she kept telling Jerry and I, my wife Jerry and I, about uh, this Pender Island place. And uh, still, I was in that Parksville mindset that, you know, the Gulf Islands, 
you know, and a couple of years went by, I finally said, okay, we'll come, you know, we'll come and visit. Like, so we came over on a long weekend in uh, August of 1996. She had one of those, uh, Chris had one of those 10 acre properties down Pirates Road. Uh, we were able to somehow get our truck and camper down sort of below where the little cabin was built onto a, a kind of a bluff. And, um, and that's where we sort of camped. And uh, man, oh man, Jerry and I had been with the camper. We'd been to all kinds of places all throughout BC and Alberta. And, you know, every time we went somewhere, we'd go, oh yeah, this is great. We should buy a summer place here. But, you know, like Pender Island just captured our imagination. Like it was just a magical feeling. So, you know, Monday came, we're supposed to take the ferry back. And I said to Julie, would you mind if I just offload the camper here and 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 then we'll uh, we'll come back every few weeks, you know, whenever we're free on a weekend, and and see if we actually do like Pender. And uh, basically, every time we came back, we spent our our hours driving around, uh, getting lost in Magic Lake, looking at property, and and we bought a little piece of property at the end of Magic Lake in '96, and uh, moved the the camper there, and and uh, yeah, eventually we end up here. So what was it that really drew you to finding the island to be so magical back in the day? You know, I don't even know what it was about uh, that initial visit. Uh, you know, I, I guess the landscape, the ocean, uh, the ruggedness, um, you know, was really the uh, probably the initial kind of draw. And I'd gotten over that whole Gulf Island thing. You know, as we came back uh, for the weekends, you know, you'd see the same people in their grocery stores. And, uh, and you know, wherever we went, in the pub and so on. And, and, you know, they recognize you and they acknowledge you. And, you know, you have no idea who they are, but, you know, you each recognize each other. And so we got that real great sense of community. And then we uh, devoured the Pender Post every month that came out, you know, just to find out all the happenings on the island. And it just seemed like a magical, wonderful community to live in. And, uh, you know, definitely off the beaten track, as it were, so out of the city and away from the sounds of the sirens and the, the ambient light and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's just a, a magical spot to us. Okay. And, and so at that time, what part of the city were you living in? Uh, we were living in uh, uh, both New West and Port Coquitlam at the time. So Jerry was a grade 7 teacher out in Maple Ridge, and uh, I was at Douglas College. So we kind of split the difference and lived halfway. And, uh, you know, I mean, we loved it there. There was no question about that. But, you know, once we started coming here, you know, there was no doubt in our minds that uh, when we retired, we were moving here. Okay. And so I know that after 96, you and your wife, Jerry, decided to uh, start building a house. And how did that unfold? Well, it was, it, yeah, it's another interesting story because, you know, you don't know all the rules of CRD and the Islands Trust and everybody else. And, you know, we would come over for a weekend and, and a, a friend of ours actually offered us a fifth wheel trailer that we could park on the property. And I thought, wouldn't that be great to actually have a bathroom where you didn't have to drive down to you know, Browning or somewhere, you know. So I started looking into it and realized that, uh, gosh, you know, by the time I paid for the sewer and the water and all the other stuff that went with it, and we were putting aside so much a month for the future anyway of, on Pender, I thought, well, why not just get a builder's mortgage and build a house? So I think in 99, we started building and, and uh, you know, we'd come over every few weekends. We'd bring friends over, you know, and uh, pretty well every friend we have has been over here and contributed to the building. And uh, and we had some locals, of course, like Gary LaPalm, who's passed on now, but then Bernie Vanderhaeg, the electrician, who's also passed on. But, you know, we had a few of the local, you know, characters that, that came and helped us and 
and taught us how to do it. So uh, yeah, it was, that was a neat time as well. Yeah, you know, it's fun. It's fun when people come and visit or like when I go visit other people and they get me to do projects or help around their place. It actually feels so much more rewarding of an experience. Like I walk away from a weekend like that thinking, oh, I helped. I did something productive rather than just like sitting around. I'm sure your friends probably felt the same way, I would imagine. Oh, yeah. We had tons of fun. I mean, we still socialized and did fun stuff, played disc golf, went out in the kayaks and stuff. But uh, in between times, we managed to get a bit of building done. And and the uh, next thing you know, the house is uh, you know ready. All right, well, let's uh, back it up to you talking about being at Douglas College, and that's how you met uh, your colleague, Jewel, there. But you uh, were teaching at Douglas College, and what were you teaching at Douglas College? I was teaching part-time in the therapeutic rec and part-time in the sports science programs. And uh, at that time, I was also coaching our national wheelchair basketball team, our women's team, sort of off the side of the desk, as it were. And uh, over time, uh, you know, eventually I... uh, Ended up full-time within the sports science area. And then uh, after a while, uh, the coaching expanded and uh, it became uh, sort of part of my job. Uh, The college would uh, be paid by Wheelchair Basketball Canada to uh, release me to go on all the the events, the camps and the tournaments and that sort of stuff. So, you know, it was a wonderful career, really. And and to be honest, I I could have kept doing it, but it would have uh, just cost too much money to commute back and forth and, and work in the city. I figured, you know, I'll just bite the bullet and retire. Okay. Well, let's get into the wheelchair basketball because I, when I talked to you before the interview, I asked for some information and I didn't even realize that you had a Wikipedia page about you, which I read, <laughs> which was pretty amazing. But uh, on the Wikipedia page, it uh, talks about the successes you had as a coach of Canadian's women's national wheelchair basketball. Did I get that all correct? Perfect. But if you want to speak about that, uh, what happened within that situation? Yeah, that that started out sort of by accident, I guess, really. I mean, I played volleyball at university. Uh, you know, in, uh, in my final year there, we won nationals. I was going to be a big-time volleyball coach somewhere. And um, through a mutual volleyball friend, uh, I met this uh, kid named Rick Hansen. And when I met him, it was actually after his uh, accident, but he was walking with his braces and crutches, and he was just standing in a in a room that you know where my buddy was so I kind of met him I didn't really you know I saw the crutches I thought maybe he had a sprained ankle you know he was introduced as a volleyball player by by my friend Glenn and so I thought what the heck eh? and I never really uh sort of paid much attention to it and I you know I continued on the following year sort of trying to uh, start a coaching at uh, Langara College you know trying to build my credentials so that I could eventually probably go to the states or you know, some semi-pro league somewhere. And then that was my goal. And um, for a summer job, uh, when I was at uh, UBC doing my master's, I was uh, looking after the facilities. And uh, it turned out that uh, UBC was hosting the BC Games for the Physically Disabled, is what they called it in those cases. It would be the, the, the equivalent to like a provincial, you know, parasport games now. Uh, there was a summer student uh, that was hired to, you know, sort of help out, and his name was Rick Hansen. <laughs> and so he comes wheeling into this meeting and says hi to me like he knows me. And I look at him, I go, he looks familiar. I must know him. So I say hi back. And uh, next thing you know, he's badgering me and pestering me to coach his wheelchair volleyball team. So I thought, oh, gosh, I got enough things to coach, but it sounds like kind of fun. So I went out to my, uh, I went out to the first wheelchair volleyball practice, and I kind of said to the team, you know, like, I don't know anything about wheelchairs. I don't know anything about paraplegia. I don't know anything about disabilities, but I know how to coach volleyball. So I'm going to run all the volleyball drills that I think are going to work. 
and uh, give me two weeks, you know, and if you guys don't like it, you can ask me to leave. <laughs> and, uh, of course, that began a history of, uh, next thing you know, I was uh, practicing with the wheelchair basketball team because they needed players. You know, I was out wheeling around Stanley Park trying to build up my arms and uh, trying to get rid of all the blisters that I got, of course. And, uh, yeah, so I just got entrenched in uh, wheelchair sports, coaching uh, athletics and, um, you know, the, the track events and marathon and road racing. And I sort of thought to myself, you know, like, gosh, uh, to get paid to coach, you know, you really have to make big moves and you have to probably go to the States. It would be the first choice. And I thought to myself, well, this coaching is a lot of fun. Uh, why don't I just keep doing it and I'll get a, a, a job, you know, at a school or a college or something and, and, uh, and then just coach, you know, off the side sort of thing. So that began, that was 1977, I think, or 75 was the first time I was introduced to wheelchair sports. And 77 is when Rick hooked me in and, um, you know, it's been uh, ongoing. I just want to get back to something that you just said about it being a lot of fun and enjoying the aspect of coaching wheelchair basketball. Can you describe how your initial first feelings were? And like, was it the people that you were interacting with? Because people who are participating in wheelchair sports, are are all of them totally disabled? Or is how does that work? I'm not even too sure. Things have changed a little bit now, I suppose. But certainly over time, um, and to compete internationally, you have to have some kind of a certifiable type of disability. It's called classification. So you have to be classified as having a, a type of disability. And that can range anywhere from having a spinal injury in your neck and sort of quadriplegia all the way through to bad knees or, or something that just can't be repaired. And so, you know, there, there's a, and there's systems in place. The classification system allows for people with all different abilities within that you know, within those functional abilities to be able to participate. So so functional ability is a big deal in, in the wheelchair sports world. When people compete, they typically compete against others who have similar functions in terms of uh, strength, uh, core strength, you know, a range of motion within the wheelchair, forward and backward movement, sideways movement, uh, rotation, and that sort of stuff. So there is a really good classification system in place. But for me, uh, you know, to uh, to be honest, like... Um, I just sort of saw all the players as just players. The intriguing part was, you know, adapting what I knew about sport and about training, you know, because I was in exercise physiology as well. And that really helped with the athletics, you know, is, is, is uh, adapting and figuring out, you know, how can I get an edge on all the other coaches and all the other teams and all the other competitors? You know, what can I do to get that edge? Like, uh, can I be innovative? Can I be creative? And so I just absolutely loved that part of it. And that was the, the fun for me. Oh, that's, that's so interesting. Any of your things from the early days that you can remember about innovations and techniques that you developed that helped uh, hope to achieve the success that you did in the future? Well, one of the first things we did was actually uh, volleyball, wheelchair volleyball was played on a six-foot net, which is pretty low. So the ball would come flying over there really fast. And, you know, you, you didn't have time to move your chair to get underneath it. So uh, I convinced everybody to raise the net up to uh, seven foot four. And then we, uh, most of the volleyball teams in Canada were, they would hit the ball back first time. And uh, we sort of worked really hard on, you know, passing the ball around and, and uh, being able to attack from sort of the, the mid back row, uh, you know, because obviously you're not jumping to hit over the net. So you have to have a bit of an angle there. So I think we, you know, we sort of took that to a, a new level. And, uh, and in fact, we pretty well destroyed wheelchair volleyball in Canada because, after about three years, we were winning so easily 
that everyone else pretty well sort of, you know, gave up. <laughs> so I was kind of sad. But uh, and then we played a little um, up and down uh, volleyball. So we'd have a standing player playing with a wheelchair player or two. And uh, so we actually did that in the uh, BC, I think it was the Winter Games, uh, one or two years where we actually it was an integrated model of uh, volleyball where there would be one player playing standing up and uh, one or two, you know, depending on whether it was doubles or triples, playing in the chair. Those innovations uh, were kind of uh, interesting. In track and road racing, you know, we looked at, okay, what do cyclists do? What do speed skaters do? Like, you know, what do runners do? Like, how could I combine or how could we combine the, the all the training you know, components of all those different sports, you know, and make it suit the wheelchair specifically? Because there was no research in those days on, on wheelchair training. So I think some of the things we did in terms of modifying the chair setup, you know, the smaller hand rim, push rims, you know, the gloves, changing the angle that, of the seat. You know, you know, you notice now how everybody sits low and and has a small hand rim and big wheels and, and longer sort of uh, for the racing chairs now, you know, they're, they're a long, sleek, almost dragster-looking chair. We started out with hospital chairs and, and started making modifications bit by bit by bit. And, um, you know, today you look at it and, you know, you wouldn't recognize it really. So, uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun, that challenge. Neat, right? So your enthusiasm was born of just trying to figure out, you know, how to improve like a puzzle you're trying to solve a bit, I guess, right? Yeah, kind of. You know, I mean, one of the interesting things was a lot of uh, coaches uh, back in those days would have been uh, from the rehab system. So physios or uh, rehab personnel. And so I was probably one of the emerging group at the time of people that just came from a coaching and sport background. So, you know, I don't know anything about, you know, the disability, so to speak. I don't know what you've gone through, you know, mentally or emotionally. But if you want to be an athlete, here's what you got to do. And uh, apparently that was quite successful because, you know, we obviously, you know, once I got into coaching wheelchair basketball after having played for so many years, uh, you know, we, uh, you know, we we took that approach. And I think that's uh, one of the major factors to our success. Neat. Uh, you mentioned Rick Hansen earlier. I think there might possibly be some people who listen to this in the future who don't know who Rick Hansen is. So maybe if you want to describe who Rick Hansen is and your relationship with him. Well, Rick, of course, uh, is a, um, a paraplegic, I guess, uh, would have been referred to in the old days kind of thing. A really good athlete. He was actually in the provincial uh, volleyball program as an able-bodied athlete. And uh, when he got injured, uh, you know, he was on a hitchhiking with his buddy on a fishing trip. Instead of going to a volleyball camp, you know, because he was kind of younger, you know, he, was, he was invited to a U19 camp or something. He was 15. He decided to go fishing instead. And on the way back, the hitchhike got a ride with a guy that had been drinking. You know, the guy went off the road and uh, Rick landed on his toolbox, the guy's toolbox, and, uh, you know, severed his spine. So, you know, there was no question for Rick that, uh, you know, as soon as he got out of rehab, he was going to go into every sport possible for wheelchair sports. So I kind of met him and, you know, over time, his uh, career, uh, you know, we we had a great career together as a coach and athlete, you know, through the Paralympics and uh, some uh, uh, world uh, marathon championship, you know, gold medals for, for Rick. And, um, you know, he decided he really wanted to do something, uh, you know, to, to make a difference, I suppose, uh, for spinal cord injury and rehabilitation and wheelchair sports. And he thought that wheeling around the world would be a great idea. So uh, naturally, I... I signed up and and uh, helped him out for the most part, not the entire thing, but for for most. And of course, you know, Rick had you know when we kind of 
you know, we'd go up to uh, SFU in the summertime and uh, we'd uh, sort of commandeer their gym and a bunch of the guys would go up and, you know, I'd drive the car up and I'd leave Rick and, you know, a bunch of the other players down at the bottom. They'd wheel up the hill for a nice warm up. And then uh, I'd get out in my basketball chair and we'd all play two on two or three on three, you know, for a while. Of course, that's how we met Jay Triano and, and uh, you know, from SFU basketball fame. And he told us about this kid, Terry Fox, who lost a leg to cancer, who was actually in the hospital. And, um, you know, wouldn't it be great if, if one of you guys went and, and saw Terry, you know, to give him some encouragement. But in Rick's mind, he's thinking, oh, basketball player, single amputee. Man, we need that guy for our team. <laughs> you know, so he was in the hospital before you could even blink an eye. And uh, next thing you know, Terry was part of our program too, played wheelchair volleyball and, you know, came and trained with our athletics group and obviously wheelchair basketball. And then, uh, you know, and then when Terry was in the hospital and he saw all the hurting, as as he put it, uh, he decided he wanted to do something. So, you know, the two of them were kind of on this uh, pathway, I guess, to make a huge difference in our society. And, you know, for me to accidentally <laughs> run into them is uh, – I'm just the luckiest guy around, the luckiest coach uh, around to have been associated with those two. I knew that you had a connection to both of those individuals, but I didn't realize that Rick Hansen and Terry Fox had a connection to each other. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Rick recruited Terry and uh, got him playing wheelchair basketball. And, and uh, yeah, they, they, uh, them and the family have a really strong connection. And, of course, it turns out that um, my wife, Jerry, who taught in Maple Ridge, uh, also taught all of uh, Terry's brother Fred's three kids that went through elementary school. And so, and the hometown run was always in Port Coquitlam for the Terry Fox run. So we got to know Benny and Roly, Terry's parents, and obviously, you know, with Rick as well. Because Rick had a, a small bronze statue of Terry that he took with him on his world tour in, uh, you know, 85, 86, and 87. So we have this really interesting kind of interconnection. And and a few years ago, I sort of delved into coaching curling for a while because uh, that's another long story. But but uh, I ended up coaching with uh, Fred Fox, uh, you know Terry's brother, and coaching uh, one of his uh, his kids. So you know, we have this really neat, you know, family connection too. So that's that's uh, that's pretty special. Yeah, actually, it just brought me back to being in elementary school, and uh, my class went down to see Rick Hansen coming in. Uh, to finish his uh, trip around the world there. And uh, it, was, it was a huge deal in uh, the Lower Mainland. Yeah, it was May, would have been May 22nd, I think, of 1987. And uh, on that final, those final couple of days, I got to drive the motorhome support, you know, in behind everybody. That was absolutely mind-boggling because, you know, when we started the tour, you know, we had a sports psychologist that had us uh, visualize some of the, you know, what it might look like out on the road and then coming home. And, you know, we visualized uh, thousands of people cheering Rick on and, you know, the tour being a great success. And, uh, you know, when it actually happened, it was really neat, like, to to see the throngs of people, you know, just uh, lining the, you know, eight, ten deep along the sides of the roads on that on that final day or two. So that was pretty, uh, pretty special. So I probably saw you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is pretty special, you know, just to think about the, what an achievement that is. And uh, I, I remember hearing that he was supposed to try to make it back for 86 in Expo, but uh, just the, the time projection was off. Yeah, this, you know, it started later because of uh, the, the support required to get it going. And of course, you know, it's it's not easy to, to wheel 70 miles a day 
you know, sort of day in, day out. I mean, that's a pretty long way. So, you know, we sort of set up a training plan to wheel three days and take one day off. And then I think when Rick came across Canada, it was uh, about 50 miles a day, you know, because obviously the demands from the media and, and groups across Canada were so high. So, uh, yeah, missed Expo, but uh, what the heck. <laughs> Made it. Still made it, yeah. Still made it. Well, let's talk about your experience being a coach, coaching uh, women's wheelchair basketball and some of the experiences that you had along the way doing that. Yeah, well, I had kind of retired from coaching, actually, (laughs) in the late 80s, and I was doing some administrative work for wheelchair basketball. And I thought, you know, I thought to myself, you know, I coached uh, Rick, I coached Terry, I'd coached uh, actually Langara volleyball, we'd won a nationals, you know, I had a few other successes, and I thought, Ah, that's good enough. You know, I can sort of relax. And I actually uh, did a, an interview for a coaching magazine and uh, with someone and sort of talked about coaching for a whole day. And and that was sort of interesting. I got home that night and I had a message to uh, someone asking me if I would consider coaching our national women. I thought, oh, gosh. You know, I was all pumped up about coaching. So I thought, well, I'll phone them back and see what it's all about. And so uh, I said, okay, I'll, you know, I'll do it for uh, uh, a year. Because you know, the program had kind of fallen apart a bit. So I said, I'll do it for a year. I'll put the program back on its feet. I promise you the team will have a positive experience. We'll have a peak performance at whatever we go to. And, um, you know, that would be that. And when I actually went to meet with the uh, the administration about it, it was a, they were in Edmonton, I flew there. And as I'm going into the hotel for this meeting, I see uh, this guy, Joe Higgins, and uh, Barb Griffin, one of uh, – one of the top players now, Alberta, coming out of the hotel. And I go, oh, what a coincidence seeing you guys here. And they go, yeah, we're here interviewing for the uh, coaching job too. <laughs> I go, what? <laughs> I, thought I, I thought I was getting it. <laughs> so anyway, I ended up getting it. I ended up having Joe and Barb as assistant coaches. And, you know, we, uh, we went to uh, Worlds in 1990, uh, won the bronze medal, which was our first medal for a long time for Canada. And um, it was a positive experience. We performed very well. And I said, okay, I'll stick around to 92 just because it's Paralympics, but then I'm done. And then, uh, you know, 94 came along for Worlds and 96. And uh, finally, I just said, look, I'll just stay around and that'll be that. And so it was 2008, 2009 when I finally decided to retire after uh, Beijing. And in that stretch, you know, we had a pretty incredible run. We won four consecutive world championships uh, plus that initial bronze. We won uh, three Paralympic golds uh, and a bronze, and so uh, it was an uh, incredible, uh, incredible experience. Yeah, and when you say the Paralympic golds, so the Paralympics follow the regular Olympics afterwards? Yeah, so typically uh, what's happened probably since uh, Seoul, I guess, in 1988, is that the uh, organizing committees for the two events are, are now combined, and so uh, the Paralympics typically... Uh, uh, shows up about uh, 10 days to two weeks uh, after the Olympics. Things will be modified a bit to make them accessible and so on. And But the same, you know, same organizers and the same groups, you know, uh, now actually organize both events. Yeah, so wherever it's going to be, Tokyo 2020, um, you know, the Paralympics will be, uh, you know, 10 or 12 days later, uh, the Paralympic athletes will move in and, and uh, participate as well. You know, it's it's interesting. I hear you speaking so casually about this, but to me, it's, it, what I'm hearing is, oh, I just went to go like around the world and teach and, and coach and to succeed and win and have these great experiences. This sounds actually totally amazing. Like this is incredible stuff, really. Yeah, it's it's uh, 
I'm really, you know, thrilled to have had that sort of, uh, you know, that career and, and that opportunity. And to be honest, I mean, I was in kind of in the right place at the right time for, for Rick and for Terry and for our, our national women as well. And uh, I'm really, uh, really proud of that. And it never really stops because, uh, you know, I showed up on Pender Island and I find, uh, find out the, there's a player named Katie Dandino who, you know, blew out her knees playing university ball. And it took me a while, but I finally convinced her that, you know, maybe another operation isn't going to work for you anymore. Maybe you should try a wheelchair ball. And so she did about four years ago. And, and uh, now she lives and trains in Toronto. Jerry and I flew to to Hamburg, Germany this summer to watch her participate in uh, in the World Championships. So that was really, really exciting too. So, And then we've got a whole bunch of kids here that uh, participate in wheelchair basketball. It kind of started as a week-long awareness thing, like it's called Paralympic Schools Week. And I got a friend from Victoria to bring over a bunch of wheelchairs. And, and I kind of uh, somehow convinced the school to let me commandeer all their PE classes for a week. And I would teach wheelchair basketball and bring in guest speakers and talk about the Paralympics and about disability and awareness. And uh, so we still do that, but we also have a full-fledged uh, wheelchair basketball program going here. You know, later this afternoon, you know, I head to practice. And uh, we've got uh, a couple of kids uh, from Pender, actually three that have been named to the Canada Games team going to Red Deer uh, at the end of February to participate on Team BC. And, um, of course, Katie is, a, is our huge success story. But uh, it's, uh, it's pretty exciting. Wow. I had no idea that that was going on at Pender Island. That's super interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing that we've done here, we've been real lucky that, uh, uh, you know, wheelchair basketball world is not that big. So a friend of mine is the coach of the Invictus wheelchair basketball team. And each year they have a, a training camp in uh, Squamalt. So we take a bunch of our kids over there to participate with the uh, the veterans who have the various uh, types of uh, physical and and, uh, and mental conditions and the Invictus Games are part of the rehabilitation, part of the ther- therapy, part of the reintegration into uh, everyday life. So, so our Pender kids have uh, had a chance to meet some veterans and understand more and more about uh, what Remembrance Day means and what it means to have served. And uh, on along the way, they've provided a bit of a spark of enthusiasm and joy of life for uh, some of the veterans that are recovering from uh, whatever conditions they've uh, they have. That's amazing. That's really cool, Tim. Seriously, like uh, that's, that's pretty incredible stuff. What you're talking about here, <laughs> so great. Okay, well, so you said you you uh, retired here in 2008, so you've been here for 10 years full time. And I know that you and your wife Jerry are also involved in a uh, German Shepherd rescue of uh, British Columbia. And I, I just wanted to hear you talk a little bit about that because I don't know too much about it, but I know that uh, you guys have been heavily involved in that. If you can describe what that organization is all about, what you guys do. Well, German Shepherd Rescue BC is uh, is a society and a registered charity that um, of uh, volunteers uh, throughout the province that kind of work together to rescue German shepherds who, um, you know, basically would be uh, essentially uh, euthanized uh, if uh, if someone didn't step in. So, you know, they're not the easiest breed in the world, I suppose. And um, you know, anybody can take a happy, friendly dog and adopt them out from. SBCA or uh, or uh, animal control, but um, you know there are lots of cases where, with uh, German shepherds in particular, where they're they've been abused, you know, mistreated, uh, tried to turn them into drug dogs or you know fighting dogs or something, and so they've had horrible upbringings. And um, German Shepherd Rescue, their job is to or their role 
is to uh, rescue these, uh, these dogs and find appropriate homes for them. And Jerry, when she was growing up in Burnaby, um, the next-door neighbor had this big German shepherd uh, named King. You know, the, the neighbor used to babysit Jerry, so, you know, she kind of grew up with King and grew up with German shepherds. When I decided, uh, wisely or not, in 96 to get her a uh, Belgian Malinois German Shepherd cross puppy for her birthday... <laughs> Then, uh, you know, became a uh, an opportunity for her to, uh, you know, she started Googling. Uh, I think Google was invented around then. She started Googling, you know, German Shepherds and, and rescues. And uh, she got involved, uh, you know, in fostering, uh, first of all. And uh, now she uh, does both that and she does a lot of fundraising as well. Because, uh, you know, a, a shepherd comes into care. There's always something wrong with him. He's always sick or needs spaying or neutering or some sort of medication or some kind of treatment, and then, uh, you know, fostering uh, the food costs and so on are covered by German Shepherd Rescues when, whenever they can. So it takes a lot of money to rehome uh, an abused uh, or, or mistreated shepherd. So that's what she kind of does now. But, uh, yeah, she has been the driving force behind fostering, I think, 15 shepherds now. 13 of them, you know, successfully left our house <laughs> and went to other uh, homes. Which has been really cool because a number of those individuals we've uh, become friends with. And so, you know, we, we uh, get to spend time with them. And, you know, some of those dogs have passed on, but, you know, new ones have been adopted. So, so we kept number 14 and number 15. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. What are their names? Uh, Ruger and Jackson. Ruger and Jackson. Okay. And, uh, and mainly it was because our, uh, our second uh, German Shepherd, Ziva, uh, she was a female who was, uh, a little bit nervous, a little bit shy, and I think Jerry thought, you know, fostering a dog might help her, uh, you know, become a little more, uh, you know, confident and, and comfortable. And it actually worked so well, she became like the sort of ultimate foster sister. So, you know, a dog would come into our home and Ziva would, you know, teach them how to behave in a, in a house. And it's a really interesting process to watch, you know, how uh, the other dogs, you know, learn from her what, what to do, how to behave, you know, how to act you know, within a, in, in a home setting. And uh, so some people on Pender might, might remember Ziva. She was the one that had degenerative myelopathy, which is a ALS or MS type uh, condition. And so for her last few years, she had a, we, you know, I built a little wheelchair for her. I, you know, I remember, I remember seeing you go for walks and uh, it was, for lack of a better word, cute. It was like, wow, it's really, uh, really helping that dog along in this last portion of life there. And it was fun uh, building the wheelchairs because, uh, you know, I, I sort of tried to use the technology we use in basketball, like, you know, some of the cambering and, you know, uh, the position of the uh, wheel in terms of the, the hip and the, where the axles go to make it more efficient. So, so she, uh, she was able to bomb around uh, way faster than the average dog in a chair just because we had a, a sport model that we built for. <laughs> <laughs> How many different versions did you come up with? Uh... Oh, quite a few, probably three or four by the time we finally arrived on a on a design that was, you know, simple and, and easy. But, uh, yeah, it was, uh, that was a lot of fun too. Yeah. And did she take to it at first or it took a little coaxing or? You know, it's funny. Uh, she, uh, you know, the first time we kind of put it on her when she couldn't really use her back legs uh, anymore, it's sort of like, um, you know, because if you can picture the front legs kind of pushing forward a bit, so the chair actually rolls back just naturally. And so you could see her go like, what the heck is going on here? And then I reached in my pocket for a treat, and she bombed forward and uh, took the treat. And then after that, 
you know, she went all over the place, uh, you know, in that chair. Why do you know a treat training works with a dog? <laughs> yeah, surprise, <laughs> like any surprise. dog owner knows, knows <laughs> treats are the best incentive ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that, that's uh, that's kind of cool. So, so yeah, we've done fundraisers on the island. Uh, we do the annual pet photos with Santa this year, coming up on December 1st. And uh, people can come down to the Driftwood, bring your pet, any pet. And uh, we've got a very special uh, Santa that uh, is really good with pets. And so we'll... Uh, Take the photo, make Christmas cards for you with your pet's picture with Santa, address labels. So, uh, yeah, all kinds of fundraising things happening to uh, to help support the uh, German Shepherd Rescue. Right on. All right. Well, moving into the uh, second traditional question I always get to on this podcast. And that question is, uh, who has helped you along the way on Pender Island, Tim? Oh, boy, that's a that's a good question. You know, when we when we first came here, our neighbor John Mossop was the glass guy on the island, and his partner Bev, and and they welcomed us with open arms. They they made us feel great uh, as neighbors, and uh, they've since moved away. But you know, they really sort of introduced us to lots of people on the island that uh, you know became friends and and so on. And you know, so I really got to credit them. Obviously, Jewel Roper, you know, got us here in the first place. So. You know, she's uh, her and her son Jordan have been an incredible influence on us and really helped us settle in here. You know, Laura Morgan in the early days got uh, got us involved with uh, lots of people on the island. So we're really lucky that we had a, a nice group of people to introduce us to to others. When Jerry's dad died in '05, uh, it was a couple of years, and uh, you know, her mom was on her own. My mom and dad were gone, so and Jerry's a single child. And so somehow, through uh, various ways and means, uh, we managed to acquire our house next door after John left. And so now Jerry's mom lives next door. And of course, Laura got her into newcomers, and then that got us into newcomers. And we met all kinds of people uh, in that regard. And then, um, you know, there's a lot of Winnipeggers on the island. And, uh, you know, Richard Philpott and uh, Lisa Morby and, you know, Mike uh, Wiley and Pat Salmonson, you know, the Winnipegger crowd. Uh, Richard got me into uh, interest, and Lisa got me interested in the whales and uh, going down and watching the whales from the shore. And then Richard really uh, mentored me in kayaking and, and uh, you know, in ocean kayaking because I'm fine on the lake, but a little different in the ocean. So, you know, he was a big influence in getting me out uh, on the water, and I really, really appreciated that. Yeah, so we've made these great uh, friendships over here that, uh, that uh, you know, when you're in the city, do you know your neighbors once in a while? But uh, over here, you know, our, our sort of whole block and, and the whole community of people that, uh, you know, I could, you know, keep going on with a list of people that, you know, kind of got me going and kept me going. You know, Danny Martin's another fabulous uh, character. It was really his son, Vinny, uh, who I was coaching. You know, Richard convinced me to coach the boys basketball team at the, at the elementary school. And it was Vinny Martin, who was kind of the, the core key player at that point in time. So. You know, through him, I met, you know, Danny and uh, obviously Johnny. And so, uh, gosh, you know, like there's so many people that uh, have contributed to the uh, richness of our experience here. And, you know, I think the first year we're here full time, we're going, you know, we love it here. It's a great place to come. We got all these, you know, social sort of friends. And uh, we weren't sure, you know, is it going to work out as a full time kind of gig or not? But, uh, boy, we wouldn't have it any other way. We've just made incredible friendships and, uh, Incredible relationships, and you know, it just keeps growing and growing. Like uh, you know, we we sort of meet new people all the time, and 
and create new friendships. And uh, it's, it's a lot of fun. Okay. So what I'm hearing you saying is the people who have helped you a lot along the way have been the people who have uh, helped integrate you into the community and just been solid friends. Oh, absolutely. And, and I think volunteering uh, coaching down at the school, you sort of meet the families and you meet all the kids and you sort of see them grow up. And, and uh, so that's a, that's a really nice connection as well. So gosh, you know, like I can't imagine us having this many relationships in the city. You know, it's just, it's uh, really rewarding and enriching and, and uh, we love it here. Yeah, for sure. You know, I was talking to somebody last night who's roughly the same age as me, early 40s, and he was saying that uh, he hangs out with a lot of people who are younger than he is. He hangs out with a lot of people who are older than he is, and he just doesn't see the difference between the two. Like going out for dinner with a couple who are in their 70s, being invited into their home and having a dinner or hanging out with people in their 20s, it's all the same. And he yeah. can't imagine that reality happening living in the city at all. And I was like, I was in agreement with him. And yeah, just to, to relate to what you're saying there. I think I think that feeling exists uh, within a lot of people on the island, which is what helps to make this place feel so good for a lot of people here, I think. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, we're exactly the same. And, uh, you know, Jerry's mom, Roberta, she's 91 now. And, uh, you know, she's got this incredible, you know, support group of uh, of friends and, uh, and neighbors that uh, that help out, you know, from time to time. So it's, uh, I, I can't think of a better place, uh, you know, to retire, to be honest. Wonderful. Well, you mentioned your wife uh, numerous times here, Jerry. How did you meet your wife? Well, we kind of met actually in uh, in university. We were uh, classmates in a couple of courses. We actually uh, were both fans of this radio show called Dr. Bandolo's Pandemonium Medicine Show. And it was a show that starred the old wet of the man, Norm Groman, and uh, Bill Ryder and a few others. And they taped it at UBC. And uh, so, one of, you know, we kind of got to know each other because we we're fans and we both went to the live tapings and then kind of went our separate ways for uh, about 10 years or so. Uh, we kind of stayed in touch here and there uh, doing things. Uh, Rick and I did some of our, our school demos out at her school when she got a, the job out in Maple Ridge. You know, then after the tour, uh, we reconnected and uh, and uh, been together ever since. Okay. So, so mid-80s or so you guys uh, got back together there? Yeah. Yeah. 87, yeah. Okay. All right. Or 86, 87, yeah. Wonderful. And so you mentioned kayaking as well, too, and that uh, is something that you're involved in. What is it about kayaking that you enjoy so much? You know, it's uh, it's hard to say. I, like the, the feeling of being on the water, being in nature, um, having to do all the work yourself to get to where you want to go, uh, I think that's really what sort of attracts me. Um, it's funny because I'm a team guy, you know, I've, and all I've ever done is team sports all my life. That's all I do now, really, basically. Yet uh, somehow the the solitude of kayaking, uh, whether it's obviously I like to do it by myself, but I also like to do it in groups and, and introduce and, and help people, you know, help get them excited about kayaking. It's uh, just being on the water. It's a, it's a magical feeling. And, you know, sometimes uh, um, when we come back, uh, there's a group of us like Dave Book and, and Daisy Tehanope and a few others that kind of go out together once in a while. And, you know, when we come back in, we kind of start slowing down a bit because, you know, we don't want it to end. You know, it's just such a incredible feeling out there. And some days it's uh, smooth as glass. Other days it's a bit rough. But either way, it's uh, it's always an incredible experience. Nice. Well, what are some of your favorite places to go on the kayak? Well, I uh, love to go over to uh, Saturn Island, either to the pub or Winter Cove, uh, Boat Pass, or, you know, uh, climb Mount Warburton Pike. That's another favorite. Head over there, do some hiking, and then paddle back. 
uh, Portland Island, you know, Rum Island, any of the sort of local islands uh, are um, really uh, my favorites. I uh, love to go to any of the islands, you know, Prevost, you name it. And if I haven't been there, I'm going to soon. <laughs> so it's not just about being on the water. It's about getting off the water and onto land and going for a hike as well, too. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, one of the fun ones, of course, is to paddle to uh, Portland. Uh, so we go to the far end, which is a bit longer. It takes about an hour and a half. And it takes you about three hours to hike around it, you know, and have lunch and then, you know, an hour and a half back kind of thing. So it's a full day uh, opportunity out in nature. You know, I've done it by myself. I've done it with, you know, friends. It's just, uh, I just love it so much. I just can't wait to get back out there. Nice, nice. And also you mentioned that you're into RVing as well too. Yeah, well, we uh, we had a camper that uh, we went around BC and that was the one that we left on Julie's property for a while. And that was built actually by Jerry's dad in the, about 1961 or 62. And they didn't even make campers in Canada in those days. He had to drive across the line to Bellingham or uh, Seattle, buy the parts, and then he'd come back and you know, he sort of assembled it. So we had that for quite a few years. And then, uh, uh, you know, once we got the place here, that kind of ended that sort of adventure. And then once we got settled in here, we thought, well, why don't we try a trailer this time? And so we uh, we got a friend's uh, old beater travel trailer and thought, let's give that a try. You know, we got three dogs, you know, it's going to get chewed up pretty good. So let's give it a try, see if we like it. And, uh, you know, that was about five years ago now. And we love it so much. Uh, that we've kept doing it. And now we're sort of planning little RV trips a week here, a week there, you know, with the dogs. It's a, it's a whole lot of fun. And, you know, we do it with uh, friends sometimes as well. Some of our other German Shepherd Rescue uh, friends have RVs as well. So you know, sometimes we meet them, sometimes we don't. But uh, either way, uh, we have a lot of fun. And to be honest, um, one of the main motivators was when Ziva had the uh, DM and needed uh, the wheelchair, you know, you try finding a wheelchair accessible trail on Pender Island and, uh, you know, you're going to be looking. I mean, there are some improvements that have been made uh, lately and uh, and uh, Parks and Rec are really aware of that. But it's still, it's a tough terrain to go through. So uh, we would go over and go on the Galloping Goose Trail and go down to uh, places like China Beach and French Beach that, you know, that had these flat surfaces for her. And uh, so that kind of got us into it, you know, that double whammy of, of trying uh, camping again and finding places for her. So. Now we're hooked. Nice. Well, what are some of the future places you want to go RVing? Well, I mean, our, our ultimate dream really is to go across Canada. Uh, we've had friends that have done that and, uh, you know, we're, we're eventually going to do that. And uh, another one we want to do is up to the Yukon. Uh, I've got my older sisters now in Dawson Creek. And so um, before we all get too old, we really need to, to head up to the Yukon with them. But uh, for the time being, we're happy going over to Souk, uh, once in a while to Fino, you know, up the east coast of uh, Vancouver Island is fantastic. And uh, sometimes if I have a clinic uh, in uh, Vancouver that I'm doing, because I'm still actively doing some coaching clinics, although I'm trying to wean myself away from it, but it happens still. And uh, sometimes we'll head over there, we'll take the trailer over and uh, we'll camp down at Bray Island or somewhere and uh, use that as our headquarters and, and stay an extra week and sort of enjoy that region as well. Okay, well, I'm happy to hear you say you want to go to the Yukon because it's absolutely my favorite place in the whole wide world, hands down. I love the Yukon. It's amazing. Have you been up there yet? or? Well, I went up there for the Canada Games in 2007, I think it was, but never uh, during the summer and, and, and never for you know the purposes of enjoying the landscape and the, and the culture and the, and the adventure. 
Right. Just, just a lot of time in the gym, I guess. Exactly. That's yeah. what you were there for. for sure. A lot of time on a, the bus and minus 25 and then into the gym. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, well, you said you have a sister in Dawson Creek. Uh, how many other siblings do you have? So I have a sister in Victoria uh, who uh, uh, was born in Canada. So you know, she's about five or six years younger than me. She's about to retire. And uh, so she sold her house that she had in the Keating Crossroad area. And she'll uh, retire into one of those new condos they're building in, uh, at the Marigold site, the old Marigold site. Oh, yeah. I just biked past there the other day. Yeah, yeah. So she, you know, she comes over quite often to visit or we go over there. And uh, it's kind of nice if we want to go over and uh, go to something that's in the evening in Victoria. Uh, we get to stay with her, and uh, and so you don't have to worry about a hotel and a hotel for the dogs and stuff. Uh, you know, she's quite uh, good with the boys, as it were. And so, uh, yeah, it's fun having uh, having sisters in diverse parts of the province that we can get to visit. Okay, wait. So, like, where are you in in the setup of ages? I'm so, just... so I'm in the middle. You're the middle child. Okay, I'm the middle child. My older sister uh, Julie is uh, six years older, about five or six years older, and then. Liz, the uh, younger one, is uh, five or six years younger. It's interesting, you know, that age gap. We didn't hang around a lot as, as uh, you know, when we were young. You know, we were, you know, I was in high school and Liz was in elementary school. So the last thing you do as a high schooler is hang out with, a, you know, an elementary school person. So, and then my older sister was already gone by then. She uh, she had already eloped, actually, by that time. So we never really spent a lot of time together as as kids. I mean, we were in the same house together and and uh and but you know we had our separate friends that we always used to hang out with so it's kind of fun you know over the years uh you know being able to sort of uh reconnect and do things together that uh that we all enjoy together so wonderful and maybe you just want to bring this back around to uh the beginning of your life a little bit about uh, your little bit about your family heritage so you said that your family's from england well originally uh actually uh, there is a town called uh, frick in switzerland where the original sort of group came about six or seven generations ago. They came there, they left there, uh, some of them uh, on our side of the family anyway, some of the Fricks uh, went through uh, France and then, uh, you know, for the last three generations uh, in England. Uh, it's interesting, both uh, my dad and my grandfather were Bobbies in various police forces in, in England, which is uh, sort of interesting uh, that uh, I'm, I'm the first one to break that chain, I guess, of uh, not joining up uh, with the police. But... Uh, yeah, it's a it's an interesting sort of history, and we've reconnected now with some uh, cousins in England, both on my dad's side and my mother's side, that um, that we've visited uh, over the years, and they've come and stayed with us out here. So that sort of family connection, you know, we no clue about it when we were young, but uh, you know, once we hit our forties and fifties, we kind of reconnected, and and you know, everyone had the means to be able to travel, so we've been able to uh, travel back and forth. We also have an interesting connection with a German family. The German coach from 1990 and 92, uh, Hans and his wife Sabine, they decided to stay for a holiday in Canada after a, a training camp we had here in, in, uh, in 1990 or 91. And so we said, well, you know, when you come to Vancouver, come stay with us for a few days. And, and so that started this uh, lifelong friendship of uh, them visiting us uh, for fun now. And uh, us visiting them. So, you know, when we went to Germany to watch Katie play, you know, we saw some English relatives first, you know, some English people that had adopted German shepherds that had moved back. Uh, and then we stayed with Hans and Sabine for a while. And then they came with us to Hamburg to watch the tournament. So, you know, it's been, uh, you know, it's uh, one of those full circle things. Yeah. So 
in terms of places that you've traveled around the world in your life, you know, through coaching and the other experiences that you've had, what place really stands out in your mind as a place that really resonated with you the most? Oh boy, that's uh, you know, I think my my most uh, powerful experience was actually in Belgium, which is sort of interesting. Is that uh, uh, I was with Rick then on the world tour. And uh, we had a van that we were sort of following in behind as a support vehicle. And a few of us would rotate off riding the bike with Rick and stuff. You know, it was a bit of a struggle going through England and then Scandinavia and places like that and and uh, France and whatnot. And uh, when we got to Belgium, the strangest thing happened. It was as if as we were going down the road, there all of a sudden people would be streaming out of the houses and the shops and the businesses and uh, lining the road and cheering him on. And it wasn't like they were there waiting for hours. It was it was almost like they had a phone tree or something. And they were calling and saying, you know, you're not going to believe this guy is wheeling around the world. And they all sort of kind of came out. A similar thing sort of happened in the Netherlands. And uh, one of the things in the Netherlands that was really exciting, I mean, other than the fact that both those countries are fairly flat, so they're good for, for wheeling and, and cycling, is, um, you know, on a day off, uh, we got to go to a uh, a, a cemetery that had been uh, primarily filled with Canadian soldiers. And, uh, you know, it's hard to even tell the story now without bringing a tear to my eye. But, you know, so Rick uh, Rick and I and the crew went to the cemetery and uh, they we had a tour up and down in some of the grave sites, some of the unknown soldiers that were from Canada, uh, some of the known ones who had uh, nameplates. And, of course, the uh, the Cenotaph Monument of, uh, of Canadian soldiers. And, um, you know, the... Uh, the Dutch people were so uh, thankful uh, for the Canadians for, you know, liberating uh, Holland. Uh, and they treated Rick <laughs> you know, as if he was one of them. And uh, <laughs> there was a point where, you know, he was in his chair and he kind of, he looks up and uh, looks up to this monument and, and uh, you can see a tear running down his eye. <laughs> and, uh, man, oh man, that's... Uh, even today, I can't tell the story without uh, without cracking up. That was a really powerful experience. Yeah, that's that's really beautiful. Like the um, even so long into the future from that incident, that people had such uh, positive emotional yeah. like. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, and that would have been nineteen eighty six, I guess. So uh, you know, it was still. I mean, that was forty years after the end of World War Two. Yet, uh, you know, Canadians are still revered for for what they had done for the people there. Yeah, for sure. Well, super poignant story for, you know, the day that we're recording this on. So thank you very much for sharing that. For sure. Yeah. I guess maybe the last question is to touch on perhaps is, uh, you know, what, what sort of plans do you have for the future? What sort of goals and uh, and ambitions do you have leading up for the next uh, next phase of your life here? <laughs> what, uh, what, what does the future hold for Tim Frick? Yeah, I think, um, you know, Jerry and I are really happy here on Pender and uh, we're really happy sort of traveling around and visiting places in Canada. And uh, I think, uh, you know, she works tirelessly for German Shepherd Rescue on the fundraising side of things. And, uh, and uh, you know, I still do tons and tons of coaching. So I think, you know, we're looking at slowly phasing those things out a little bit, maybe getting more efficient at the fundraising. And, uh, and uh, you know, I've been training other people to uh, – to lead the clinics and courses and, and that sort of stuff. So uh, once that's done, I think we'll have the opportunity to uh, travel around Canada a little bit more and uh, 
do a lot more hiking. Uh, you know, I, I really love hiking as well. And, and, uh, so uh, next year, if things go according to plan, I'll, uh, I'll do the West Coast Trail, uh, with my buddy, John Pizma and, and, uh, maybe one or two others. So, you know, we're, uh, you know, we're, we don't have these grandiose uh, goals to win a world championship or something, but, uh, certainly to experience uh, Canada and, and experience the outdoors and stay in shape, stay fit, stay healthy. And, uh, continue uh, to contribute to the community here on Pender. Lovely. All right. Anything else you want to lend off with? Any parting words you want to say to the people of Pender Island before we uh, finish up? <laughs> well, I think, um, you know, one of the things that we appreciate over here is, uh, you know, we have friends that come over that use wheelchairs. And, um, you know, bit by bit, you can see the changes starting to happen on Pender. Things are becoming a little bit more accessible uh, for someone who uses a chair. So, you know, it's great that Pender Island, uh, you know, sort of embraced this whole idea that, you know, we hardly ever have anybody with a chair that, that comes to the island, you know, for any reason. But uh, when we do, we'll be a more welcoming and uh, an accessible community. So that's uh, one thing I want to thank the people on Pender for, you know, for, uh, for helping make that uh, happen. And, uh, you know, there's still a lot to go. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in, Tim. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, to honor that interview, I decided I'd come down to Mortimer Spit Park. So Mortimer Spit is located on the South Island, just past the bridge. As you make your way to the South Island, it's affectionately known by most people as the Spit, and it's a really popular place with locals and tourists alike, especially in the summertime. And it's got some... Amazing views. It's a really amazing stretch of land. I can see Saturna Island right now with the setting fall sun on it. If I look the other direction, I can see Port Browning Marina. And you can also see the bridge that connects the North and the South Island. And I came here because of something Tim said in the interview. He mentioned about coming full circle. And this is where I was when I ran into Tim a few months ago and asked him to do the interview. So I thought I'd bring the interview around full circle and ended off where it began. So I want to thank Tim once again very much for doing that. That was great. I want to thank you so much for listening. And until next time.